Our next part of the lesson are going to be bracketing sort of that first passage. We're going to go back to the first chapter of Micah, and then we're going to go forward to the sixth chapter of Micah. Uh, the sixth chapter is the part that you all know that you just all sang, um, except that's really only verse eight out of chapter six. Micah starts, for the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread on the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will burst open like wax near the fire, like waters poured down a slope. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Then chapter six, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. The prophets are a bit different. So when we look at the Old Testament, technically we define it in three separate chunks. So there's the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And then there's the writings, which is really everything that doesn't fit the first five books or the prophets. And then there's the prophets. So the writings are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We chunk Esther in there a little bit. And then the prophets are the rest of it. The big name prophets are Isaiah and Jeremiah in, in the biblical books. And then we have Micah. Micah is, I mean, really, he's like seven chapters. There's not much to Micah, except we read Micah every Advent. And this last verse, Micah 6, 8, is probably on more coffee cups than any other verse in Scripture. And so people know Micah even if they don't know Micah, because it's just floating around out there in the world. What's important for us is that we're making this transition from a narrative style, which is the past. When we read the histories, when we read Torah, it's talking about things that have already happened. And when we move into the prophets, they're concerned with what's going to happen. So our vision goes from our rearview mirror to our windshield, and that changes how we read the text and what God is doing in the world. Micah is, um, Micah is a small-town prophet. He's not in the halls of power. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in Samaria. And yes, we can say Samaria. This is the early part of the divided kingdom. Um, Samaria is not a bad word yet. That takes another 800 years to get into the New Testament. Um, and where it starts off is that the people of God have messed up so badly that God is going to come down. And the description in the first chapter here is, is pretty graphic. And I think we've often read it as though it's just destructive graphic, but I'm not sure that's Isaiah's point when he says that the mountains are going to melt and the waters are going to um, flow and that the things are going to melt like wax next to the fire. I think he's more saying that the presence of God coming that close 
Nothing can stand it. Not people, not the landscape, not nature, not us, not our sinfulness. There's, there is nothing that can stand against the presence of God right here, right there, right next to us. That's something that really doesn't happen in the Old Testament. It hasn't happened since God went visiting with Abraham and Sarah. So this is quite the change. This is quite the change that uh, Micah is talking about. But Micah is a small town prophet, and you may hear echoes of Illinois politics in this, in this passage in that, well, what's the big sin of Jacob? Well, of course it's Springfield. What's the big sin of Israel? Well, of course, it's Chicago. That's, that's what he's using. He's using the two capital cities here of the northern and southern kingdom. If you remember, um, you'll get a good example of the poetry here, is that the last bit of verse 5 does the parallelism that Hebrew loves so much. This is for the transgressions of Israel and Judah. What are those transgressions? Well, let me list them for you. But it's Jacob and Israel, and Jacob and Israel are the same person. Jacob is the one whose name has changed to Israel. So it's all the people of God getting lumped together here, and it's a problem. But it's a problem in the places of power. It's a problem in the capital of Samaria, the capital city that is Samaria, and it's a problem in Jerusalem. That's how Micah is laying this out. There's a problem at the top. And it's creating problems all the way through. Now, we just read about David a couple weeks ago. So I think we understand how a problem at the top causes problems all the way through, right? And now God is ticked enough that God is going to come down and do something about this. And the rest of Micah is spent casting that vision for what that's going to look like. Chapter 5, this is, this is the Christmas Eve passage right after it. We sing, O little town of Bethlehem, and we get ready to call it night. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephratah, one of the little clans, one of the small, out-of-the-way places. Now, we, with our hindsight, are always going to remember Bethlehem as the city of David, right? I could probably get two of you to burst out into once in Royal David City. Granger would moan because it's off-key, you know, those sorts of things. Um, Micah never actually says that. He's assuming his audience is going to remember that. Uh, we draw that connection very explicitly later. Micah would assume his audience would get that. We're going to go back. We're going to go back to Bethlehem, back to the simpler days, back to when we just had a shepherd. You remember when we just had a shepherd as king? He wasn't even in the lineup of the sons who were eligible. He was out with the flock. Let, let's go back to those simpler days. Again, you can hear the political message of 2,800 years ago resonating. And more than that, let's go back to before David messed everything up. Let's go back to this grand promise that God made to David, that the lineage of David will be on the throne forever. Let's go, let's go back. And then God starts to do really weird things with what God tells Micah to say. And 
He'll be a shepherd and he'll stand out in his flocks and he will be wonderful and mighty and powerful and grand and great to the ends of the earth. And then we get that tagline that we love at Christmas that doesn't really make any sense to us in the way the world works the other 364 days of the year. And he shall be the one of peace. Because that's not really how geopolitics works, is it? That the one great to the ends of the earth is the one of peace. That's not really how this works. The one who is great to the ends of the earth has the biggest army and the biggest navy and the most people and causes the most chaos and damage and destruction. So clearly God is doing something different here. I think this is the point at which the kings in Samaria and Jerusalem start going, I'm glad this Micah guy doesn't have a national franchise. I'm glad only the hillbillies are hearing him. We get to that bit then that is on the coffee mugs and things, and we only read that last tiny, tiny snippet of it. We only sing the last tiny, tiny snippet of it. We leave out the part where what is acceptable to God? What should I bring? Should I come back? Remember Solomon? couple weeks ago, thousands of burnt offerings. If, if one burnt offering is good and it gets me out of this much trouble, then 10 burnt offerings ought to get me out. How much should I bring? Should I bring a thousand rams? 10,000 rivers of oil? That's not a question normal people get to ask, is it? Gayla's done the stewardship bit this morning. and So everybody should bring a million bucks. I heard something over here that was dismissive of that claim. Um, right? I mean, that's that's the sense. Should I bring a million dollars? Well, $10 million would be better is the sense of this passage. Well, yeah, it would, but... Right? Which, which one of you is going to pony up $10 million? Who was in California last week to buy a lottery ticket? This is this is exaggeration. This is this is church drama done done well and done high. And it cycles back around once we get out of the absurd ideas of offerings. God has already told you, told us, oh mortal, what is requested, desired, acceptable to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. And now there's a lot of really disappointed people because that sounds like an awful lot of work. I liked it when I could just go in and sacrifice a lamb or a ram or a calf or some turtle doves or whatever it was and I was good. I liked it when it was that simple when I could just check it off the list. And that's what we hear still in the New Testament when they come to Jesus and say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then they get the list of things and they're not sure they want to do that. In Sunday school, we talked about the challenge of what is it to do justice, not to treat justice as a noun, but to do justice. And do we mean that the law is carried out or do we mean that things are morally right? Two entirely different things. But that there is a verb here that we should be doing justice, not just like watching justice 
somewhere out there. And then we struggled with loving kindness because the Hebrew word for it is hesed, and it's about God. And literally, they made up the word loving kindness with a hyphen in English to translate it. It, it doesn't translate. It's around the faithful love, loving faithfulness, faithfully loving. And we talked about the, the notion that we beat up on kindness all the time. I can't believe you gave money to that person. You know they're just going to go buy drugs or booze or whatever. You know they're just going to waste it. How often have we done that? How often has our little voice told us that as we did something? How often do we find it hard to accept kindness and we push it back? We force it away from us because we don't need charity. We're fine. We got it under control. Got it handled. We talked about this perhaps being a more faithful translation. What God wants us to do is nurture kindness because it takes practice and it takes protection and it takes shelter for kindness to really take root and grow in our lives. How many of us have ever started a new good habit going to the gym? watching what we eat, saving money, staying in touch with parents or kids or friends better this year than we did last. How long does it take before those break? Right? I mean, gym memberships are discounted in December and January. They go back to regular price in February because you've already made your commitment and paid for the year. And my friends who are gym rats love it in February and hate it in January. But by February, it's back to empty as it was in December. We need to nurture, we need to provide space for these things to grow. And that's part of what God is saying the people of God are to do. And then we talked about walking humbly. Talked about that not being... Look at me, I served in the soup kitchen, aren't I wonderful? I'm solving hunger one person at a time, one meal at a time, aren't I great? Talked about the, the prayer of the Pharisee and the tax collector side by side. Thank you, God, that I am not a hypocrite. Thank you, God, that I am not a tax collector. Have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Tension in those two prayers. We talked about a sense of being humbled by seeing God at work in the world. The hush of a freshly fallen snow, not like Saturday snow, like real snow. <laughs> the beauty of a day, the wonder of a friend's voice, the power of being told to go home early, being able to sleep in, being amazed by what God is about and doing in the world and being humbled in that sense that we are not responsible for all of it. It's going to happen if we don't get it done. And it doesn't all depend on us. 
God is at work in the world. All of these are fundamental shifts for the people of God that Micah is talking to. They're used to a sacramental system where you do certain things and certain things come out the other end. And if you sacrifice this much, it clears out that much sin. And that's just how it works. They're used to an idea that God is up there. And only if you really, really, really mess up, are you going to have to deal with God. And they deal with a long history and a legend of David that isn't just David. It's David. It's Moses. It's Elijah. There's a long history of of great figures. And Micah is saying, but wait, there's going to be more. God is going to just be here walking among us. The presence of God is going to be unmistakable. Those of you who've read the Gospels know that the presence of God was actually quite mistakable. People thought it was everything else, a rabble rouser, a political uh, troublemaker, just the carpenter's kid. The presence of God was, was quite easy to overlook. And yet it transformed so much. We have been told what we are to do. And for the people of Israel, this may be one of the first times where they're told this broadly, how to encompass all of these things. Not, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not eat pork, thou shalt not eat cheeseburgers, thou shalt not eat oysters, but do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. Do some interpretation. And it sets the table for something different. But it is that same question, that same set of questions that we must ask ourselves as well. We have done it this way for a long time. Whatever this way is, whatever a long time is. What does it mean for us to do justice in the world? How do we love and nurture kindness? It is sadly missing in our world. How do we walk humbly in a day and an age when it seems like everybody is building their brand and we care about influencers and likes and follows and whether you have a blue check mark for $8 a month on Twitter? Right? This this is still a learning curve for us today. This transition from the way we thought the world worked where things were transactional and I'm nice to you, so you're nice to me and everybody gets along to a world where things are set on God's calendar and God's schedule and the immensity of God is made real. Micah, there's a reason we read Micah every year in Advent, right when we're getting ready for Jesus. Part of us is reading back into the story, and part of us is reading, hopefully, into the idea that Jesus Christ is coming to transform things that just don't work. Heather pointed out that we're really, really good at being thankful from November to the end of December. 
you know, as a society, as an institution. How does gratitude carry us through the rest of the year? We see that challenge at the Ministerial Alliance. We have a lot of food on January 1 and July 1, not so much. This is Micah's challenge for us as we prepare for a God to come down, for the immensity of the presence of God in a manger in Bethlehem, in that out-of-the-way place. How are we doing justice, nurturing kindness, and walking humbly with God? It should change us, the imminent presence of God and our faithful lives. They should change us. How are they doing that? Micah is the hinge on which we turn. And it still stands true. He has told us, O mortals, what is good? Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. To God alone be the glory this day and forevermore. Amen.